welcome to Fireside Breakdowns, and welcome to session one. So pull up a chair, get into your comfy clothes, and pour yourself a drink, probably stiff. Uh, for our first session, we've decided to think small, really go for something manageable, and take on systemic racism. We know. We know. It, it hardly seems worth the time, but we really wanted to ease into our roles here and start with something relatively non-inflammatory and simple. Yeah, you know, just the basics. Um, obviously, this is a massive topic that impacts all of our lives, no matter what color our skin is, every single day. Sometimes it's in ways that are really apparent, and sometimes it's in ways that we never even notice. So we'll do our best to keep this a direct, concise breakdown, uh, but the reality is we could literally dedicate hundreds of hours to discussing this one topic and not be finished. So for now, we're going to address what systemic racism is, what it's not, and where the idea comes from, and then we'll talk a little bit about how it applies in today's society, um, especially in the criminal justice system. Yeah, this is one of those topics I think that we've decided is going to be a multi-session uh, thing. Um, we're really going to focus in on that criminal justice aspect today, and we'll cover other aspects of it later. Um, we do recommend that drink. <laughs> I hope you're comfortable now because this conversation will likely cover some things that will be hard to hear and probably hard to accept. Um, we will include our citations as we go. Uh, we'll have our write-up published as soon as we figure out how we're going to do that. And um, that way you'll be able to go through it yourself and see the references and, and track things down if you'd like to. Uh, we hope you're ready. Welcome to our fireside. So question one. Why do we want to talk about this, Robin? Well, I mean, it's the foundation for so many of the conversations about race that are happening right now in your social media feed. I mean, they're, I know they're happening in mine, mm -hmm. um, and I'm hearing from other people that they're happening all over the place. And it seems as though, even though there are some good, simple explanations out there, there are some things missing in people's understanding of this concept. Yeah, it gets boiled down to almost an oversimplified version a lot. It's like people are trying to explain something that will take hours to explain with a, a pithy tweet or something like that. And it's just missing a lot of important aspects. And I think we both agree that while those, those you know, small bite-sized pieces of information can be useful, um, unfortunately, a lot of the time they cause people to not critically think about something and just uh, fall back to their entrenched position on a topic. They hear the the phrase and they just shut down. They don't want to talk about it anymore and give it any real thought. So we're going to try to address that here. So we need to cover a few definitions of things before we start because we're going to be talking about uh, some of these concepts. And if you don't know what they mean, uh, you might not know what we mean when we say it. So I think the first one is going to be individual racism. Yeah. So Individual racism is what everybody thinks about when they hear the word racism, right? It's one person or a small group of people and they have race-based stereotypical thoughts or feelings about another person or group of people because of the color of their skin or their perceived race. That's what most people imagine when they hear the word racist. Your Nazis, your KKK members. Uh, these are extreme examples. Not every racist looks like that. Um, but that's the foundation of individual racism, right? I don't like you because you are a different race than me. And then this gives way to something more subtle, racist ideas. Yeah, so racist ideas, right? So the next step when you go from individual racism 
you head into racist ideas. And I'm using the term in the way that Ibram X. Kendi used it in his book, Sam from the Beginning. Excellent book. Highly recommend. And he talks about racist ideas being influential public theories or philosophies used to justify racism and oppression against other races on a broad scale. Examples of this. Africans are inherently lazy and need to work and they need the rule of a master or else they'll fall to their own slothfulness and sinfulness. That one is, you can still see evidence of that racist idea in a lot of narratives about black people today. Yeah, we saw um, the the master part specifically post-Civil War, during the Reconstruction era, during Jim Crow laws even, it had a, a tint of that in there. It's, as we're going to talk about, the word master has kind of morphed and become something that's more societally acceptable um, in, in one way or another. But the, the root of it starts with that original Africans are lazy and they need a master. Right. And then it goes, it takes those ideas and then it goes beyond those overt obvious statements. So some things like, oh, 13% of the population commits 50% of the crime in this country. Or what about black on black crime? These are just other ways of couching the racist idea that black people are criminal inherently in the terms of statistics and making it a much more acceptable question to ask what about this racist idea by adding in facts. So typically those those kinds of ideas are quoted and included in narratives and storylines, especially about black people, but also about indigenous people, also about Hispanic people. And they're talked about without any indication of why we might as a society hold on to these ideas. Right. And that's something I think we'll touch on a lot as we go through this, not just this, but every topic is that statistics can strip something factual from its context and be used to make a point that isn't necessarily reality. You can say something like 13% of the population commits 50% of the crime and use that to support a racist idea and, and say, oh, no, it's just science. Right. It's just numbers. Numbers don't lie. And that's a very dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous trap to fall into. And I see it every day on social media. People just, oh, it's numbers. It's not me. Get out of that way of thinking. This leads to uh, a couple other things. We want to talk about the difference between explicit or overt racism and complicit or implicit racism. So explicit or overt racism, again, goes back to that sort of KKK Nazi idea that people think about. It's actions taken against individuals specifically because of a perceived racial difference. So in extreme forms, you know, this is where you get lynchings from. That's an overt act of racism. It contrasts with complicit or implicit racism in that this is racism that's perpetuated either by inaction, by not doing something, or by supporting racist institutions or practices without necessarily claiming to support the racist things that they practice. So the person who supports these institutions may not actually be doing anything that is overtly racist themselves. They're not going out and participating in lynch mobs, for example, but they're not doing anything to stop racist institutions. They don't question these institutions with regards to their equity uh, to... BIPOC, which is a phrase that we're going to be using a lot. Um, I'm going to define that really quick because it's different than the POC that people see a lot. Um, it literally means black, indigenous, and people of color. It is an expansion of the POC acronym, 
that's used to encapsulate all people of color, but it intentionally acknowledges that not all people of color face the same levels of injustice. So it really it raises up the two groups that, are, that have the, the largest, most historical struggle uh, with American culture since, uh, <laughs> since we got here, basically. So let's talk a little bit about what systemic racism isn't. Okay, like we talked about before, it's not your explicit individual racism. It's not KKK rallies. It's not Nazis marching in the streets. It's not lynch mobs. It's not the laws that are explicitly written or or were explicitly written with reference to race. You probably aren't going to find any laws anymore saying that white people can do something that black people can't or that white people should get paid 50 cents more an hour than black people. And if you do manage to find an active law that reads like that, though, Reach out to the ACLU, let them know about that as quickly as you possibly can, because that's definitely uh, unconstitutional. So it's not overtly refusing to hire someone based on the color of their skin, or in the case of Ahmaud Arbery, three white men chasing a black man down and killing him because they thought he committed a crime. These are examples of different actions taken by racist people, individual racists, but they are not systemic racism. However... Those thoughts, those people are likely products of a systemically racist system. And this next part, this is very confusing for people. Systemic racism is also not systematic racism. I hear the words confused a lot. They're kind of used interchangeably. And in some situations, you can use those words interchangeably, but not in this case. The definition we could we should focus on in this case would be uh, systematic means uh, methodical in procedure or plan. Uh, that's a literal dictionary definition of it. Systemic would mean fundamental to a predominant social, economic, or political practice. So an example of that would be the Nazis used systematic racism when they targeted uh, Jews and Romani for extermination. They had a plan, they executed it, it was, that was it. A less severe example would be something that we've kind of already mentioned, not hiring a person due to skin color. It's like computer logic in a sense. You have an input, and if this input is white, if this person is white, you take this action. If this person is black, then you take that action. You actually think about it and act at, act on it based on skin color or or genealogical history. We have been historically racist against white people in, in the case of the Irish, which gets brought up all the time. So I don't want to limit this conversation. It's just the conversation is focused right now on people of color. So that is what systematic would actually be. You look at their race, their genes, if you will, and decide based on that information. Exactly. And, and as we're talking about systemic racism today and in future episodes, it's important to remember that a lot of systemic racism has systematic roots. These systems at one point did explicitly step by step take racist action against people. But as that societally became less acceptable and as the laws changed, they morphed into something that was much more subtle and much less systematic. So racist systems are where individual racism and racist ideas inform the creation of policies or major systems designed to enable, enforce, and justify racist practices. That's heavy. I'm going to say it one more time. 
Racist systems are where individual racism and racist ideas inform the creation or policies of major systems designed to enable, enforce, and justify racist practices. So we see this in modern society in that it benefits white people. Glenn Harris, president of Race Ford, publisher of Color Lines, uh, he defined it that bluntly. A systemically racist system are policies, practices, and procedures that work better for white people than for people of color, often unintentionally, but I mean, sometimes it is an intentional outcome, which we'll see later, um, especially with respect to the drug war. Some of the outcomes we see are people of color not receiving adequate health care, uh, being blocked from specific housing markets, disparities in how people of color are treated by the justice system, both in police interaction and in sentencing, uh, or even underrepresentation in business and politics. Sir William McPherson in the United Kingdom's Lawrence Report an across-the-pond perspective. Interesting to note that the United Kingdom also has its own struggles with the same systems that we struggle with. He defined it as the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color, culture, or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes, and behavior that amount to discrimination through prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping, which may disadvantage minority ethnic people. So I think something important to pull from that definition is that it's not necessarily an active condition. It can be something that happens passively. It's a failure of an organization. It's something that they didn't actively do. Right. They just failed to address it at some point. Right. And that's where we get into the idea that complicit or implicit racism is really the driver of systemic racism. It's not the explicit individual racism. It's the kind that allows us to not see difficulties for people of other races right. because they don't affect us. Which is, if you're listening to this and you've heard or seen the phrase, I don't see color, that's actually why one of the, why that phrase, it's one reason why that phrase is, is so damaging. Because without seeing color, you can't recognize where it is an important factor in why stuff is happening. You should not make judgments based on color. But if you can recognize it and then see how a system is impacting a person because of that, then you can take actions to correct that. Right. And then Dr. Trisha Rose, who is the director of the Center for Study of Race and Ethnicity in America at Brown University, um, describes systemic racism as referring very specifically to the ways that forms of discrimination that take place either in the past or the present work together in intersecting ways to produce a systemic effect overall. So that one's kind of a uh, cerebral definition. It's hard to put a, a, a specific example to that, but imagine something like you have a policy that prevents people of a certain racial background from applying for loans of a certain amount, right? And because of that, they cannot afford housing in certain areas. So then they become grouped in certain other areas. That intersects with the ability for those people to, say, travel to a job. They can't get as far. There's no public transportation, something like that. So now, not only can they not get a loan, so they have to live in a certain area, they might not be able to work jobs that provide enough money for them to move out of that area. So those things intersect, right? And that causes a continued pattern where people are forced to live in those conditions 
generation to generation. Exactly. And I think that that's really at the core of what we're seeing take place in America today. We can talk about the different parts of systemic racism, the different systems in which we see these things. But in reality, what we experience every day is the intersection of the places that all of those policies and procedures and systems came together to holistically disadvantage an entire group or groups, plural, of people based on their race. Right. And it's something that one of the reasons we're going to have to break this down into multiple parts is that there are a lot of different facets to this problem that come together to make it one actual problem. A lot of the individual facets may not appear to be problematic on their surface or by themselves, but when they intersect with other things, it causes a problem. It's like how uh, sodium by itself is dangerous and chlorine by itself is dangerous, and when you put it together, it forms table salt. Except for the other way around. It's two things that are safe by themselves and come together and make something dangerous. I just couldn't think of my chemistry off the top of my head to get a good example. So in short, a simple functional definition that's not necessarily complete, but you can use it, um, is that systemic racism is something that is inherent in a culture or a society because of the way that society has developed. So I want to go back to the hiring analogy that we talked about earlier. So the company that was refusing to hire people based on the color of their skin, that was systematic racism. They get in trouble. They run afoul of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and they have to now hire an outside source to hire for them, right? So this outside source is going to build an artificial intelligence where they can feed all of the information of everybody that's ever been hired for the company into this AI, this computer, and the computer will take a look at those and it will find what the company needs for the, for the business, what they look for when they hire, and then it will make recommendations based on that information of who to hire. This would, in theory, absolve this company with a racist history of any responsibility for bias in the people that they hire because it's a computer doing it. So this team, they build the AI, they feed that historical data in, and then the AI, who is only using the sample of previous hires for that company, learns that the people who were hired under a systematically racist approach are what the company needs. So therefore, it proceeds to continue that racist behavior without being explicit about it. It just eliminates uh, BIPOC applicants because they just haven't historically been hired. It's just not something that has happened historically in the company. The AI itself is not racist. It's impossible for it to be racist. It's just a program, but it operates in a way that these people are treated differently because it was still built by a systematically racist people on a systematically racist foundation. The system is racist, even if the AI operating the system is not. The biases are inherent in the system. I love that example. It's so perfect because it, it illustrates how the principles of something that we thought was great at the beginning are carried forward, even though those principles were racist. That's, uh, I like that example. I do want to credit a uh, 
Mr. Burnoff over at, uh, <laughs> I love this website, withoutbullshit.com. Uh, he, yes. He gave me the, the sort of language I needed uh, in reading one of his articles to understand that. He goes a little more in depth in it on systemic versus systematic parentheses, for example, systemic racism, close parentheses, um, on his website. That's the name of the article if you want more examples or how that works. Where do we see systemic racism? To be fair, I see it everywhere because I'm looking for it. And I think that you, once you are looking for it, once you've listened to this podcast and you understand what it is, will also see it everywhere. There are very few of the major systems in America that are unaffected by or free from this kind of structural racism because the very founding of America had racial inequality as a cornerstone. Right. Let's be very clear about what you mean by systems in America. Just list some of those things, because I think people tend to think of like bureaucratic systems or government systems when they hear that phrase. And that's not necessarily what it always is. Right. Another way that you could look at it is infrastructure, right? So housing in America, education in America, medicine, healthcare, the corporate environment, surprising areas like your car and homeowners insurance rates or uh, what, how you style your hair. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the criminal justice system is where we're going to spend a lot of our focus today. Right. Just some news on, on hairstyles. I think Virginia passed a, uh, passed a law that uh, said you couldn't discriminate based on natural hairstyles, which I thought was really that is cool. Awesome. That was really cool. There are not a lot of those laws that exist because, unfortunately, not a lot of people, um, especially in predominantly white areas, are aware of the actual discrimination that happens against um, especially black women mm. who are wearing natural hairstyles. They're right. big afros or kinky curly hair or dreadlocks. Um, all of those are traditionally black hairstyles. And for a very long time, women especially were discriminated against in the workplace because those were seen as unprofessional ways to wear your hair. Right. Um, so it's really big. Going back to Reconstruction, there was actually laws passed that, uh, actually even before that, uh, slavery, uh, that women had to wear a, a scarf or a shawl or something over their head to hide their hair. So it, it has a very long history of being a source of discrimination, which is yeah. it's just so weird to me. It's just hair. I'm not going to pretend we couldn't do an entire podcast. Oh, I think literally I think on we black will. hair. I think we will because I was reading about it a couple weeks ago and it's just fascinating. Some of the reasons for some of the styles are just so cool. Yeah. So anyway, a little tangent there. So like you said, we're going to focus most of our discussion today on the criminal justice system. So believe it or not, this was just the intro. <laughs> we haven't, <laughs> we are about 30 minutes in now. And we haven't even started to get to the foundation, the real, the roots of systemic racism and how it presents in our society. Um, so we're going to take our time to focus now on the criminal justice system. We may refer during this conversation to individual racism and racist ideas in the context of how they helped create racist systems. Um, but we're not really focusing as much on the why behind this today as we are the what and how behind systemic racism. Exactly. And I think it's important for us to note as we start to move into this discussion of the criminal justice system, much of what we're getting ready to talk about is how the criminal justice system disproportionately impacts black Americans. 
Um, and simply that's the, the reason that we're doing that is simply because um, indigenous people and Hispanic people don't seem to have the same disproportionate level of interaction with the criminal justice system in America that black Americans do. Yeah. And I want to stress something. A broken criminal justice system for people of color is a broken criminal justice system for all people. So white people have bad interactions with the criminal justice system as well. But as as Robin just stated, it is disproportionately unfair to black indigenous people of color. So if we can address this problem from the perspective of it being bad for the minorities in America, it also improves the standing for everybody in the United States, in the criminal justice system. Uh, one of my very good friends and mentors, he has a business called Rising Tide. And the reason is because a rising tide lifts all boats. He is dedicated to bringing everybody up. And you do that by one person at a time. And that's the same principle here. We fix it for one group of people because it fixes it then for all groups of people. Exactly. And another kind of caveat here is that, like we talked about before, systems intersect, right? And so a lot of the things that we're getting ready to talk about also intersect heavily with poverty in America. Um, we know that the poverty circle and the minority circle in America overlap very heavily. Um, a good majority of the people who live below the poverty line in America are black. Um, but we also know that there are poor white people and those poor white people find themselves having these negative interactions with the criminal justice system. But again, that doesn't negate the racism within the system. It just brings another level of intersectionality that we will have to address. Right. Yeah. One more thing I want to talk about is I hear all the time people saying, well, people are protesting police brutality, police killing black people, but they never talk about how the police kill more white people than they do black people, which putting aside you know, the fact that white people are the majority of the population and therefore will have more interactions with the police and putting aside that it is a disproportionate representation of people of color. That is not a def defense. If anything, that is another damnation of the criminal justice system because it's just more people that should not die. That's all that is. So we don't really yeah. talk specifically about about that issue as we go through that, as we go through this, and we just honestly, we ran out of time, but I really want to highlight it here. It is a issue for all people. We're yes. focusing on people of color right now. Right. But white people, go ahead and get mad too. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. You can protest Please. too. Because, because we care about your lives as well, right? And it's, it's not okay for our criminal justice system to operate in a way that any human life seems to be as unimportant as it is. Yeah. It should never be a, there should never be this mentality of, ah, man, they killed another one. And that is, that is something that we as Americans have, have sort of accepted as normal now. And that is not okay. And it is something we all need to break out of that, that sort of mentality now, because it's not common in other policing systems around the world, in other countries. It's just not which means it's not okay here. Just like most systemically racist institutions, the criminal justice system in America has an explicitly racist history. There's 
no shortage of documentation on the ways in which the U.S. criminal justice system, even before it was officially a system, has functioned in a way that was detrimental specifically to Black people. Um, Before the 13th Amendment, when Black Americans were still considered property in many states, um, laws were passed concerning how they were allowed to move and how other peoples were allowed to move in relation to them. Um, Slave clauses that prohibited the interference with the retrieval of escaped slaves from other states and laws regarding the movements of free blacks when you did find them, um, violations of which very often resulted in their sale into slavery, uh, removing their freed status. One of my favorite examples, I I say favorite, let me put that in quotes. One example that always comes to mind whenever I, I hear about laws regarding the movement of free blacks Um, is there was a professional boxer, uh, I believe at the turn of the century, named Jack Johnson. And he's one of the the best boxers of all time. Awesome, awesome story. What a character. (laughs) But at one point, he was seeing a white woman, which was obviously a big deal. Police couldn't do anything about it. But he was one of the few people with a car at the time. And (laughs) at one point... Uh, I believe he drove her across a state line. And because of that interstate travel, suddenly he was in violation of a law. And then he was arrested and he was in a lot of legal trouble for that. So just just yeah. something as simple as a white woman crossing a state line with a black man could land you in, in legal trouble and risk you being sold back into a form of slavery via the penal system. Just like that. Yeah. And it's important to note that, like, these laws were not um, what you would consider legitimate laws for stopping and arresting somebody today. It was things like making eye contact with a white person, um, spitting on the ground, engaging in any gesture that a white person in proximity to you would feel was disrespectful. These really kind of arbitrary rules and regulations for slaves and free blacks both um, that were enforceable ultimately because no one could speak up against them. And this really gets into the origins of uh, police in America. Um, This is kind of where we see them coming to be. A little little known fact, I guess, is that organizations like the Texas Rangers were originally established to round up and return escaped slaves to uh, plantation owners, uh, to to their masters, if you will. The policing system has always existed to enforce the rules of the people in power. And the people in power, while now is supposed to be representative of the population, um, hasn't always been a representation of the population. It's been a representation of the people who were considered people in the population. So a lot of original laws, a lot of original statutes, everything were written by white people for white people because white people were the only people considered people. Yes. And it's it's kind of a really interesting uh, dynamic that I discovered in doing some of this research is that the first slave patrols, the first plantation masters were created um, as a middle class because whites who didn't have land, who didn't have political power, who didn't have clout were treated almost as badly as the blacks and the slaves around them. And in order to prevent them from coalescing rebellions of all of the underclass, the landowning planters gave them- The coalescing against the historical 1%. Exactly. 
gave them a legitimate set of written privileges that allowed them control over blacks, both slaves and free Native Americans, um, and then began the establishment of these slave patrols as kind of a, a way to keep unlanded whites, poor white people, busy and out of rich white people's hair. So hmm. white people, you get to be mad about that too. You want to keep somebody quiet, you give them some modicum of power that they don't have enough context to realize is nothing in the long run. Yeah. So the uh, the official police departments, I suppose, when they became a actual codified union of people in the north that was around the 1830s uh, and they were used in in like boston philadelphia to monitor the underclass of immigrants of poor um, and and people of color black people police involvement in discrimination actually got so bad that by 1871 congress passed something called the ku klux klan act which was a law that prohibited state actors from violating the civil rights of all citizens in part because of law enforcement's involvement with the KKK. Like it wasn't just accidental that police were, you know, targeting people of color. It was part and inherent to the system. They were part of the KKK. They were a massive part of the KKK to the point where laws had to be made. Congress had to get involved to stop that yeah and so that's a part of our history a part of the foundation where our systems come from today that a lot of people i think don't know that a lot of people overlook and as we were talking about earlier you really have to understand where the explicitly racist system started to understand how it evolved and changed and morphed into a systematically racist system now yes so immediately after emancipation many states especially in the south enacted explicitly racist laws some of the most well-known were called the Black the Black Codes, um, and they included a bunch of vagrancy laws, which governed, again, the lives and the behavior of newly freed Blacks in America. Vagrancy laws basically said at the beginning of every calendar year, you had to have papers showing that you had work for the rest of the year. Um, and if you didn't have that, you were in violation of these laws, and you were then forced to sign a penal labor contract, and then... Um, in most cases, sent directly back to the plantation owners who had used and abused you in the first place. Only at this point, they had very little vested interest in keeping you healthy or safe or alive because there was a large population of Black people available to them on a rotating basis to make sure that the labor was accomplished. The 13th Amendment has a really exceptional clause in it that says that no person can be made a slave in the United States except if they violate a law, except as in punishment for a crime, which allows them to be used then for penal labor. This is really where we see the, the beginnings of the prison industrial complex, something that I'm sure we will talk about later because it deserves its own episode. Um, but basically, as you said, when you have a relatively unlimited pool of labor for cheap or for free, you are then incentivized to find a way to get people in prison, get people in trouble, and therefore get that cheap labor. And this sounds like, oh, that's horrible. That's historically just, wow, I can't believe we used to do that. No, no. The 13th Amendment is still in effect. This still happens today. 
Prisons and prisoners are still used for labor for modern companies to produce and build products. So this is not ancient history. This is today. This is right now. This is July 3rd, 2020. This is happening. There's an excellent chance that there is something in the room with you right now that was made by a person who got paid something like 13 to 16 cents an hour to create this thing that you probably paid a significant amount of money for. Right. Yeah. If you see a sticker that says made in the USA, there is a large, large probability of that being made in part or in whole by inmate labor, modern modern slavery. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about these laws is that you could have one eighth Negro blood and still be subject to these laws. So there's an excellent chance that people who in all appearances looked white and maybe had slightly curlier hair or brown eyes were subject to these same laws because their grandparent, one grandparent, was a former slave. I mean, I know this stuff. It still blows my mind every time I hear it. You found a really good quote from like a, uh, a primary source from an Alabama planter. And I'd like you to talk about that for a minute because I think it's important to hit on these primary sources, these quotes. Yeah. Prepare yourself because it it shook me the first time I read it. Um, but it just reinforces the idea that, that racist ideas are behind these systems. Um, so in discussion of creating these black co- codes and these vagrancy laws, um, this particular Alabama planter said, We have the power to pass stringent police laws to govern the Negroes. This is a blessing, for they must be controlled in some way, or white people cannot live among them. It gives me goosebumps hearing it now. So this, of course, foreshadowed things like Jim Crow, legal segregation, the drug war even. We'll we'll hit that in a second. I guess there is some good news about these laws, these these black codes and vagrancy laws. They were overturned relatively quickly, at least for our legal system, and an extended set of civil rights was codified, and it extended these full civil rights to blacks and attempted to protect their voting rights. But of course, as with all things that are good, this led to a significant temper tantrum and backlash. It led to backlash. <laughs> from white wealthy Americans centered around a fear that uh, blacks taking an equal position to whites would be the natural result of these protections, both in power and in position. And it might even reverse the rules of power. We still see that fear today. You know, these people with these insane theories that black people will just turn white people into slaves and want to do that. And that's their only goal, which is... Ugh, such a disgusting idea in so many ways when people say that. Michelle Alexander, uh, who we're going to talk about a lot, writer of the book The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, a civil rights activist, lawyer, advocate, all-around amazing person. She describes that backlash as a campaign of terrorism in an effort to redeem the South from Reconstruction. Yeah, and and... This kind of struggle back and forth was so significant that it led to what some people started calling race riots, but really were just massacres across the South. One particular one in Memphis involved, you know, some 
harassment of black people by white people and then black people attempting to defend themselves and devolved to the point where the newly minted police in Memphis just supported the entire white mob with all of their arsenal and peopleage and engaged in wholesale destruction against black communities in Memphis. And it was so significant that the United States House of Representatives put together a committee to discuss this particular riot and issued a report. And in that, um, it's listed in our sources here, you can read the firsthand testimony from white people who were involved in that. And comparing those testimonies to the descriptions of what actually happened, it really just presents a devastating picture. The lack of protection that the police force was in any way obligated to give to black communities. Right. Unless you think this is a one-off, that Memphis was the only place that this happened and it was something terrible that led to change, Black Wall Street in Tulsa is another example of this, uh, where the police went in and supported white terrorists, really. It's called the Tulsa quote-unquote race riot. It's more like the Tulsa massacre. Mm -hmm. And um, it was backlash from white uh, wealthy people at the success and perceived equality that black people in Tulsa at the time had. Black Wall Street was an incredibly wealthy neighborhood in Tulsa. And the police and white rioters went in and burnt every building down in the neighborhood. Literally bombed from airplanes every single building. You know what the cool part about this story is? After that massacre, they rebuilt in five years. The black community rebuilt in five years and it was back up and running and they got destroyed again. That's yeah. the sad part. And I think there's some legislation now or some recognition from the city of Tulsa about what yeah. happened and there's a, there's a park there commemorating it. But it's, I mean, it doesn't exist anymore because people could not allow that to happen at the time. Right. So this all naturally evolved into the Jim Crow era. So the roots of Jim Crow started in the 1860s, but accelerated in the 1880s through the early 1900s. And by 1919, lynchings were at an all-time high, as were these these race riots. I'm going to put quotes around that every time. I think it's unfair to characterize them as riots when people just don't want to be dying. So by 1920, cities in the north like Chicago were trying to get black Americans to move out of the south. Um, and they were using methods like the Chicago Tribune, I believe, was publishing a newspaper that was released in the south. And it would exhort black people to like, hey, get out of there People in the South don't like you. Come up and, and bring your businesses here. We will treat you fairly. This, of course, for some reason, pissed off all of the white people. And so they banned the Chicago Tribune and then uh, would severely punish people, especially black people, caught reading it. Which just, it's such a weird mental dichotomy to me. Like, we don't like you people, but we don't want you to leave either. And we don't want you reading about leaving. You wanted to exert power. That's all it was. Yeah. Of course, the Great Depression happened, and we all unified against a common enemy. Psych. Great Depression did nothing to improve race relations. There is an argument to be made that it actually made them worse. And even after World War II, veterans were subject to Jim Crow laws and discrimination returning from war. 
during this time period, the northern states weren't exactly havens for black people or black Americans either. I know Chicago was trying to get them to move there, but in places like Ohio, segregationist Alan Granberry Thurman ran for governor in 1867, promising to bar black citizens from voting. He lost that political race, yay, and then was appointed to the U.S. Senate, where he fought to dissolve Reconstruction-era reforms benefiting African Americans. I use this example because I think people have this mentality, and I think the, the education system fails us here, that, you know, oh, the Emancipation Proclamation happened, everybody stopped owning slaves, that was the end of it. Oh, the Civil Rights uh, Act happened, and suddenly everything was okay. You know, Jim Crow was over, and there were no issues. But what actually happens is that these legal arguments are put forth, things are stricken down, things are made illegal, but the same people who originally wrote the laws, those racist laws, are still in power. They're still making laws, and they're not all of a sudden not racist. So what happens is they try to find ways, as we'll see, to couch their racism in acceptable terms to target the people that they want to target and stay within the bounds of the law. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, especially about the North, because in our history books, we're taught, right, Souths in the South, it was all about slavery. They they hated black people. Um, but in the North, black people could be free. And we hear all about the Underground Railroad and the attempt to escape North. Um, but what nobody talks about is that segregationism, this idea that black people and white people needed to be kept separate, was alive and well and healthy mm. in the North. It was the foundation of most of the city's rules and laws. They just weren't being used for forced labor. Right. There was not a politician in that time period and for many, many years who did not believe in the holistic separation of blacks and whites. Abraham Lincoln himself, the great emancipator, only freed slaves with the intention of shipping them all to a colony in Africa. Right. He was under no impression that blacks and whites could live functionally effectively together. He, in his thought, was very similar to that Alabama planter. There's no way we can possibly live successfully together. So as we're talking about how things develop in the North and South, keep in mind that the difference between the North and the South was primarily forced labor, was primarily slavery. Treatment of blacks in both places was terrible. Right. I would love to have an episode on that someday too, uh, the Confederacy and what it actually stood for. I'll give you a sneak peek. It wasn't states' rights. So suburban developments in the North and South are a good example of how these policies could be legal, but still discriminatory. So there were legal covenants that did not allow black families, black people to obtain mortgages for homes in certain neighborhoods. This, this was called redlining because I believe there was literally a physical red line on a map where certain lenders would not issue mortgages to people of color for those neighborhoods. We'll see that redlining kicked off or was rather, didn't kick off, it was part of a chain of events that ties directly to the systemic problems within the criminal justice system, within healthcare, within wage differentials. The point is that there are plenty of loopholes. There are still plenty of loopholes that allow legal discrimination. Yeah, and in the 40s and the 50s and even the 60s, there were a series of laws and court decisions that slowly made it 
illegal to discriminate against people of color. In 1948, President Truman ordered the integration of the military. Um, In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus the Board of Education that educational segregation was unconstitutional, bringing an end to the era of separate but equal education, at least in law, not necessarily in practice. And then in 1964, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which legally ended the segregation that had been institutionalized by Jim Crow laws. Um, In 1965, the Voting Rights Act halted some efforts to keep minorities from voting. And then the Fair Housing Act of 1968 legally ended discrimination in renting and selling homes. Right. But as we said, the the problem, the problems persisted. The people who wrote those laws, their successors are still in power today, today. People would continue to try and influence the way the system was built. Just as the AI in our example about the hiring process could not escape the biases of the people who created it, so would the structures and laws created after Jim Crow be subject to the biases of these lawmakers, which leads into systematic or structural racism. Michelle Alexander, again, civil rights lawyer, advocate, legal scholar, She has a quote that I think really hits the nail on the head about how criminal justice is is used in the modern era. She says, mass incarceration in the United States has, in fact, emerged as a comprehensive and well-disguised system of racialized social control that functions in a manner strikingly similar to Jim Crow. So Jim Crow, in name, is illegal off the books. We have found a way to re-legalize it, if you will. And a lot of that is by couching our racist ideas in seemingly non-racist terms and laws. Right. So a lot of the way that that is enforced, that systematic part of this process, was through policing and through law enforcement. So we know that the racist idea is that Black people are dangerous and lazy, and so they need to be more heavily Police, they need to be watched. We have seen history of police departments focusing their efforts on controlling the rowdy under underclass, right? Preserving law and order, which means that because of that idea, black communities, which are now centralized, concentrated because of redlining, see and saw, they still do, more police presence, right? The police were responsible for enforcing that non-legal but still very functional separation between black communities and white communities, Um, white communities perceiving that the black communities pose danger to them, and then using the police departments to, to preserve the boundary to make a buffer between them and the black communities. The support, again, of abuse and oppression of Black people and other minorities instead of protection. The the police in America have a long history of disproportionately interacting with and not not rectifying abuse against black communities. Right. And then just a, a continued heavy police presence in order to maintain law and order in those communities has effectively created that segregation that Jim Crow was so famous for without ever having to have laws separating blacks and whites on the yeah. books. It's, uh, I think, one of the issues that we see are um, this statistical, quote unquote, fact that 50%, right, 13% of the population committing 50% of the crime. We see this fact 
And I think we can get to part of why that happens when we recognize that the police focus on these neighborhoods where people, minorities, have been forced to live because of other systems, right? If you're looking for something, you're going to find it. There's an, a movie, The Number 23, that came out, I don't, I don't know, several years ago now. I've lost all sense of time and what it means. But the conceit behind it is that when you see something, when you're told to look for something, you will find it. So the number 23, you know, it says, well, you're, if you look for it, you'll find the number 23 everywhere, which of course you will. You will always find a way to make it happen. The same thing happens when you deploy police to certain neighborhoods. They're there more. So they will find more crime. That doesn't necessarily mean more crime is happening there than in, say, a white sur suburban area. It just means that the police are there to see it. So what happens is you see a disproportionate impact on the number of people arrested. I think a great example of this is the war on drugs. If you don't know, this might blow your mind a little bit. So the war on drugs was and is and continues to be particularly detrimental to communities of color. It's the reason behind a lot of racist stereotypes that we see even today. So faced with rapidly declining popularity due to the Vietnam War, Richard Nixon and his advisors needed a new enemy. They needed something that they could unify against and show the American people that they were tough on. If that enemy just so happened to be a political enemy as well, that was a bonus. So what happened is they began this quote-unquote war on drugs. Now, John Ehrlichman was White House counsel to President Nixon at the time, and he is quoted as saying, Look, we understood we couldn't make it illegal to be young or poor or black in the United States, but we could criminalize their common pleasure. We understood that drugs were not the health problem we were making them out to be, but it was such a perfect issue that we couldn't resist it. So the, the goal of the war on drugs wasn't necessarily to target, you know, drug kingpins, which is often what it is stated as being, you know, we're going to get drugs off the street, we're going to target the sellers. It was to find a way to disenfranchise and target uh, communities of color, uh, hippies is the term that they used at the time. They were specifically targeting hippies as well. And it's still, it still is problematic in terms of efficacy and disproportionate enforcement. It's the single greatest contributor to mass incarceration in the United States. Drug convictions accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of the U.S. penal system's most dramatic expansion. The war is waged almost entirely in, in poor communities of color, um, despite data and indications that people of all races use and sell drugs at similar rates. Not just similar, but almost identical rates. And while the stated purpose as I said, is usually to go after drug kingpins and these people moving, you know, tons of cocaine. In 2005, four out of every five drug arrests were for possession, and only one out of the five were for sales. 
And in 2007, a report from the Sentencing Project found that most people in state prison for drug offenses had no history of violence or significant selling activity. So nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests in the 1990s, when this drug war peaked, could be attributed to possession of marijuana. Marijuana, a drug that just this week was decriminalized in my state of Virginia, making it the 42nd state to decriminalize it in some capacity if you include states where medicinal use is, is appropriate as legal. Which just like, that's a lot of people in prison for something that we are now, as a society, beginning to say, never mind, it's fine. And there is a very yeah. real possibility that the next president of either party is going to legalize it federally. There's a huge push for that. It is a popular idea nationwide. It's very frustrating to think about. Most of those statistics, they came from uh, Michelle Alexander, again, in from her book, The New Jim Crow. Um, you can read that. It will run everything down for you. You will be not happy after that, though. It is yes. pretty rough. And it's also really important to note that in states where they do de decriminalize marijuana or where they lessen penalties for possession of drug use, those laws are not retroactively applied to the current prison population. So if you are in prison serving time for possession of marijuana and your state decriminalizes marijuana, you will not be allowed then to leave prison because the crime you committed is no longer a crime. Right. It takes a specific act from the, the state governor to release you from the state prison if the crime you committed is no longer a crime. And I think a lot of the mentality about the argument for that is that, well, it was a, it was illegal at the time, so you still did commit a crime, which I think is baloney, but here we are. That brings us to, you know, the, the morphing of systematic racism into systemic racism, specific targeting of individuals to generalized targeting of individuals who just so happen to be black or a minority since the end of reconstruction the modern american state the u.s has normalized ongoing racial othering largely by transforming its operation from the legal state to the less visible administrative state and especially the nearly invisible carceral state so that is that's a quote from Racing Abnormally Normalizing Race, The Origins of America's Peculiar Carceral State and Its Prospects for Democratic Transformation Today. Northwest University Law Review, you can look it up. It is basically saying that a lot of what was once a, a legal process of othering people has become an administrative and cultural process in the uh, United States right now. It's something that is perpetuated not by law, but by policies and practice. Yeah, and, and a lot of that when we come to law enforcement and the criminal justice system goes back to that concept that we were talking about earlier of disproportionate minority contact. The average black person in America will have more interactions with law enforcement, especially negative interactions with law enforcement, than the average white person in America. Um, and that's because of those things that we identified earlier, those systems that intersect poverty and concentrations of minorities and the war on drugs and focusing our attention on those areas that are likely to be hotspots, especially for illicit drugs. So there are two kinds of theories in law enforcement that I uncovered while we were doing this research. Um, and the first one is the threat hypothesis, 
which posits that the greater the number of acts or people threatening the interests of the powerful, the greater level of deviance and crime control is needed. It's a little blunt, but it seems pretty common sense. The more trouble there is, the more you're going to need to work to control it. And then there's hotspot policing, which is similar to that, specific locations within the larger social environments of communities and neighborhoods, such as addresses or street blocks or small clusters of addresses or public housing developments, private low-income housing developments. The focus on crime prevention in these neighborhoods through a few different methods, but the one that I found to be particularly problematic is the increased presence, increased patrol, right? Contributes again to that disproportionate minority contact and the idea that you will see things where you are looking for them. You will not see them where you are not looking for them. That's where we see theories like uh, broken windows policing come in, which is this idea that if you allow small crimes to go unpunished or unanswered, then that will naturally lead to an increase in larger crimes, which on its surface might sound reasonable, but what it ends up doing is you have people that are around police more and the police are looking for crime, which means they find a crime, jaywalking, right? Which means they punish that crime, you get a ticket over and over and over again. They're looking for crime, they find a crime, they punish that crime because if they allow the small infractions to go, then the big infractions are going to happen. Which ends up, let's say you do get a ticket for jaywalking, for something simple. That's a fine. If you're already struggling financially, then you can't afford a fine. Or maybe you can afford one fine, but then you get another fine for something else. Your argument might be, or the argument for this might be, we'll stop breaking the law. A lot of the problem is you don't have to be breaking a law that you even know about for police to target you. The, the ignorance is no excuse from the law. We hear it all the time. So especially when it gets combined with things like we need to show better numbers for our enforcement as a department, they end up writing more tickets. They end up finding ways to ticket more people because they need to prove as a department that they are useful. And this all snowballs and you end up keeping poor people poor, making desperate people more desperate. So broken windows is really a slippery slope and it can lead to some really negative impacts. There is a, a flip side, a would say it's more like a cousin to broken windows policing called problem-oriented policing. And it's actually what I wrote my master's thesis on. And I'm actually a fan of this one Basically, it says that when you find those broken windows, when you find a condemned building, when you find these areas where crime happens, you don't necessarily punish it legally, right? You don't, the police don't have to write a ticket for it. This empowers the police force in the area to say, contact city utilities and say, hey, there is a street here with a lot of street lights out. We need you to come down. We need you to, to fix those streetlights. Hey, there's a park over here that doesn't have a lot of lighting in it. You should come down. You should put in a lot of lamps so we can brighten it up during the night. And it really focuses on identifying the root causes of crime and treating those problems, the actual cause of the crime, not just the people committing the crime. It sounds strange, and we'll probably have to do a whole episode to break it down. <laughs> um, 
But basically, you can think of it as we are going to limit the places where crime can happen so that less crime does happen. There are fewer crimes committed. And I think it has a lot of problems. And when we talk about, as a nation, you know, restructuring the police or defunding the police or whatever happens to the police, one of the things that should be kept in mind is not not necessarily defunding them or not necessarily destructuring them, but empowering them to do things other than be punitive. Yeah. Other than just arrest people. Absolutely. And um, kind of going back to that whole broken windows and jaywalking example, in my research, I came across a Supreme Court decision, Terry versus the state of Ohio, which was the foundation of the authorization for stop and frisk policies, which and and this is your area of expertise. So if I get it wrong, jump in and let me know. Okay. Um, but basically held that the police can detain somebody temporarily that they suspect of a crime and they can pat down any suspect that they think might be armed. So the jaywalker, for example, they see him cross the street in the middle of the road, and then they are authorized to detain that person. And if they reasonably think that he may be armed, they can pat him down and frisk him or her. And in in that same vein of looking for things where you find them, or finding things where you look for them, that leads to an increase in arrests for simple possession of small amounts of marijuana or arrests for possession of a pocket knife that is slightly larger than the legal size that you are allowed to carry on the streets. I think that was the case with, was it Freddie Gray in Baltimore, who made eye contact with a police officer and then took off running. The police officer apprehended him and and he eventually died in custody. But the only crime that he was found to be in violation of was possessing a pocket knife that was too large for the, the rules on the books. Right. So you have policies like stop and frisk or stop and search that contribute to these large numbers of encounters with law enforcement in minority communities and then increase the likelihood that crime will be found because of this disproportionate con- contact and then increase the number of minority people um, in the criminal justice system. Right. Uh, and you got it. You got it right. Actually, Terry v. Ohio was something that when I was at Academy for the Secret Service, we talked about that a lot. And interestingly, the focus in the in police training becomes being able to articulate your suspicion such that a reasonable observer or another a reasonable person would be like, yeah, I would think maybe something was going on there, too. Unfortunately, what that turns into is training for how to say how to express that you had reasonable suspicion, which often gets developed after the fact, which is not not how it is supposed to work. You can't stop somebody and then use information that you found after the stop to develop your reasonable suspicion, right? It has to happen before the actual stop itself, which is not how it's applied in practice a, a lot of the time. And articulation actually became a keyword and is still a keyword in police training, learning how to articulate your facts, your perception of the situation. And that's why we see in a lot of these cases of uh, police killings is they focus on talking about why they had a reasonable fear for their life or the life of another. And since that's the only bar, and we can get into this later, you know, that's why people get shot for having a cell phone in their hand 
Well, it was dark. I reasonably believed it could be a weapon. It's a very low standard and problematic in a lot of ways. So Terry, Terry B. Ohio, that was actually challenged and redefined, and it has evolved through several court cases. So there was uh, Michigan versus Long, Arizona v. Johnson, Helen v. North Carolina, but Wren v. United States really sums up the broad authority granted by Terry v. Ohio, and that is as long as the police have probable cause or reasonable suspicion, they can subject anyone to at least a stop, even if the crime for which the police are stopping them is a mere pretext to allow an investigation of another crime. Practically what that means is, as a police officer, I could pull you over for having a burnt out taillight, or I could pull <laughs> you over for rolling through a stop sign, because I what I want to do is actually see if you match the description of the subject of a robbery that happened earlier in the day, right? Um, totally pretextual stop. I probably wouldn't have stopped you for rolling through a stop sign, but what I really wanted to do was get a good look at your face. Again, highly problematic standard. Yeah. <laughs> it's way too lenient. And the challenge we're facing and we are going to face as a society is like, well, how do we give our policing elements the authority and power that they need to stop crime, to investigate crimes without also giving them the power to abuse, you know, how to, uh, how do we prevent them from abusing that crime? It's a very complex problem. problem. I'm so glad it's not our job to solve that problem. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it might be yours. Definitely mm. not mine. <laughs> so all this to say, this leads to a disproportionate impact. We can see that through incarceration rates, especially. In adults, 38% of federal inmates are black, while they only comprise 13 to 15% of the population, if you include two or more races. And 58% of the population are white, and they make up 76% of the population. What we could expect in a proportionate prison system, in a proportionate legal system, is the populations of a prison being generally the same as the populations of the broader society. If you somehow believe that a certain group of people are inherently more likely to create a problem, to, to commit a crime, that's racist. Like, <laughs> yes. I don't that just to put it as bluntly as possible, the color of somebody's skin does not determine how likely they are to commit a crime. Period. Point blank. Now, there are several other factors that can come into play, as we have discussed, that are the results that people are subjected to because of the color of their skin that then force them to be more desperate, to divert into more criminal behavior. But it is not the color of their skin causing crime. It is the circumstances of their life causing crime. Yeah, I, there was a an article that I that I read that listed out several of those factors, um, just so that we can be very clear. Um, the article is called "Shifting Perceptions of Race and Incarceration as Adolescents Age," and it, and it identified the different factors that might contribute to that disproportionate number. The first one is blatant bias in policing and the legal system, that belief in the inherent criminality or the latent criminality of especially the black male, social disruption and poverty caused by generational marginalization. All those things we talked about before, most of them starting with redlining and segregated communities. Legitimately higher crime rates due to poverty and generalization, or generational marginalization. 
And then a lack of understanding and access to resources concerning the justice system and due process. Right. The resources concerning the justice system and due processes is one of the biggest issues I personally think we have. I shouldn't say one of the biggest. It is an issue that we have that is actually relatively easy to solve in that (laughs) all we need to do is divert more funds, more resources to fleshing out our justice system. Read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson for an excellent look at how lack of resources can directly lead to disproportionate treatment, unfavorable treatment under the law. The book will rip your heart out, and it should. But if you don't believe after reading it that resources are not an issue, then you weren't paying attention. This this bias, this disproportionality goes back all the way to our youth as well. Black youth represent over 70% of the youth who are involved in school-related arrests and make up nearly 40% of the total youth currently imprisoned. Uh, and these, these kids are more likely to be sent to adult prisons as well. And again, they are not that high. They're not represented in those levels in our general population. It goes back to this complex and tangled series of issues that end up with perceptions and expectations driving policing more than uh, facts, more than equal application of the law. Yeah, and it that extends to not only from arrests, but into sentencing. So there was a study done, granted it was 20 years ago, called Racial, Ethnic, and Gender Disparities in Sentencing Evidence from the U.S. Federal Courts that took a gigantic number of federal criminal court cases, and then controlled for criminological factors, demographics, socioeconomic variables, and through that study found that blacks, males, and offenders with low levels of education, and again, intersectionality, right? Black males are likely to have lower levels of education in the United States, and income, they're more likely to be poor, receive substantially longer sentences than white people convicted of crimes similar crimes. I want to talk for something really quick. When you, Whenever you hear us talking about a study and it says controls for, what that means is that it takes the cases and compares them as close to a one-to-one uh, comparison as it can. It means that it controlled for, say, the criminal history of people. So it compared people with similar criminal histories, criminal backgrounds. It compared people with uh, similar demographics. It compared people with similar incomes, right? That way we can make sure that when we look at something, we're looking at apples to apples, not apples to oranges. Exactly. What Mr. Mustard found when he did that study was that the disparities in sentences were primarily generated by departures from the sentencing bodies, judges especially, departures from the guidelines that are, are set out for sentencing for certain crimes rather than differential sentencing within the recommended guidelines. So let's say the recommended prison sentence for possession of an illicit drug is two to five years. Most of the disparities between sentencing of black people and white people come from those sentencing authorities differentiating from the recommended the recommended sentencing rather than differences inside of that that range so the departures produced 55% 
of the difference between uh, sentences for blacks and whites and 70% of the differences between the sentences for males and females. And women in the criminal justice system, especially black women in the criminal justice system, is that's its own podcast. We are starting to see an increase in criminalization of black females in America, where primarily the weight was carried by black males. So that's that's its own topic. And, and although the disparities occurred across offenses, the largest differences in sentencing were for drug trafficking. Black probably. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, go for it. I was just going to say that probably intersects with the 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 uh, war on drugs and mandatory minimums, which is a whole topic that needs to be broken down. Mandatory minimums saying that you have to give this specific sentence for this specific crime, and then combine that with the war on drugs with 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 like three strike laws, which say yeah. Um, you know, you've been arrested three times for having an ounce of marijuana on you. You're going to prison for 30 years. Yeah. An unequal application of those. When you are policing a minority neighborhood more often because you think the the crime is there, which it might be because of a lot of factors, right? That means you're going to stop minority people more often. That means you're going to find one ounce of marijuana on these people more often, <laughs> which means that these people who did nothing but have who weren't dealing, who weren't selling, they had recreational use amounts on them, are going to prison for 30 years. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's startling and it's stunning to even think about it. And so another thing that he found was that if you were black and male, um, you were less likely to get no prison time as your sentence, even when that option was available, than white defendants, you were less likely to get downward sentencing. So to have less sentence than you possibly could have, uh, you were more likely to have your sentence adjusted upward. And in the rare occasion that your sentence was adjusted downward, it would be smaller than in comparison to the downward adjustments for whites and females. And there's not much evidence that the outlook has gotten better for black males in the criminal justice system in the last 20 years. This all comes together in something that's called a, a disadvantage framework. So the cumulative disadvantage framework offers an alternative systems level view of the criminal case processing of defendants. Cumulative disadvantage refers to a process of intensifying inequality among individuals that grows over time through negative interactions with the criminal justice system. Um, the concept frequently appears in life course theories. For example, childhood aggression can propel a person on a path toward adult criminality as aggression is met with physical violence, rejection by peers, family hostility, discipline, social exclusion. It is a set of cumulative factors that lead to disproportionate encounters and treatment by the criminal justice system. Yeah. If we go back to that idea that 70% of the youths involved in school-related arrests um, and we think about the fact that police officers are more likely to be in disadvantaged schools, which are more likely to be minority schools, right? Um, those young people who begin their encounters with law enforcement in their schools are more likely, and, and we'll talk about outcomes in a little bit, but they're more likely to have life cycle problems like mental illness, like aggression, like social exclusion, um, like drug use, physical violence. Um, and, and it just sets the cycle up to repeat and repeat and repeat. 
Hmm. Not to mention that, especially when police are used as a punitive presence in schools, not a protective presence, um, the impression that children get is that the police aren't there to help. They are there to control you. They're there to punish you, which undermines the trust that we as a society should have in our policing system. We should be able to trust our police. But when you learn from a young age that the police are there to punish you, then you are less likely as you grow older to approach the police for larger problems, which means that you are more likely to try to solve problems on your own. And in the worst case scenario, that can lead to violent interactions with somebody because um, you don't trust the police to, say, enforce a restraining order, right? Mm-hmm. And it it goes, so so all of this, this cycle goes even beyond arrest and sentencing into things that we think about as a functional part of our criminal justice system, right? The plea bargain. We hear about that all the time. But one study of Wisconsin circuit courts found that with no prior convictions for the same crimes, Black defendants were less likely to receive the option to plead down to a reduced penalty. And they also had significantly less access to alternative sentencing options like substance abuse treatment, Hmm. anger management, therapy. So we just see the criminal justice system being disproportionately applied because of that theory of latent criminality, because it would appear from looking at evidence from all of these different studies that that the people doing the sentencing and operating in the criminal justice system operate under a probably subconscious belief that black offenders are more likely to become repeat or serious offenders in the future and therefore they receive more significant punishments going forward than their white counterparts. Right. And that's actually, a, that subconscious bias is likely developed in the course of a career. So some, I, I am sure that the people who go into be, into policing, um, that go into being lawyers and judges and determining these cases, don't all start out with this inherent bias against certain people. But if you are a police officer, whose patrol routinely takes you through the same neighborhood where you see a certain type of people routinely committing the same crime, then you develop an expectation of those people uh, performing criminally, of being criminal. So then you take those same group of people, you then take them to a court, which then sees the same group of people over and over and over again and develops this bias. It's not intentional, but it's a feedback loop. It gets worse with time because expectations become realities. And it's not necessarily true, but when you're only looking at one thing, again, when you're only looking for crime in one spot, you're going to find crime there. You're going to, if you only look at your expectations, you're going to find a way to meet those expectations, to have those expectations met, I should say. Yeah, it's just going to continue to confirm and confirm and confirm that bias. And you you have well-intentioned, well-meaning people who want to make the world a better place. And they end up participants in this incredibly disproportionate system. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, we have to start to talk about the outcomes of this system for communities of color specifically. Right. Um, we know that this involvement in the criminal justice system has generational and repeating effects that continue to perpetuate the same cycles, the same layers of disadvantage 
that bring people into the criminal justice system in the first place. As of 2016, more than half of prisoners in the United States were parents of at least one child under the age of 17. Um, A full 2% of the population under the age of 18 in America has at least one parent in prison. That's, again, as people concerned for the future of our country and the health of our nation and the health of our people, um, that should be staggering. That should make you pause. Yes. That, that should make you sad. A Florida State University longitudinal study um, identified several harmful effects of parental incarceration, which um, feel like they should be common sense, but I, I think we have to list them. Um, children who had at least one parent in prison were more likely to commit criminal behavior. They were more likely to have mental health issues. They were more likely to use illicit drugs. Their educational outcomes were lower. Their earning outcomes were lower. And their their intimate relationships, their partner relationships, suffered significantly. They were more likely to experience violence in those relationships, whether they were the perpetrator of the violence or or the receiver of the violence. And these effects can typically be seen by early young adulthood, by the time a child has it reaches puberty, and they continue to magnify then into late adulthood. And so we see this pattern in which over-incarceration leads to patterns of more incarceration. Right. It's, it's like compound interest, right? It starts small, but then it gets bigger. And as it gets bigger, it gets bigger faster. And you see this rapid explosive growth in prison populations, in criminal behavior, in disproportionate treatment, because it is, like we said just a minute ago, it's a big feedback loop. It just circles in on itself. And I think we cannot overstate the impact that this has on people and especially on mental health, right? Yeah. I mean, um, the the Khalif Browder story is, it was one of the stories that stopped me dead in my tracks and made me feel like I needed to investigate this system a little bit more. Um, He was a, a young man who was arrested on suspicion of a minor crime. Um, and he was held in the the justice system, in the prison system, without being charged for a significant amount of time because we know that that's legal. You can be held in different places. It's different amounts of time. But he was held for, I believe it was almost three years um, before he was ever charged with a crime. And during that time, he was in and out of solitary confinement. And he experienced significant violence from other inmates and from, from guards. And when he was finally released and exonerated... He was never charged with a crime. His mental health outcomes were so significant that within a short time of being released, he actually took his own life because he could not cope with the significant detriment to his own mental health. It literally broke his mental health and he was never charged with a crime. More than half of inmates report having some mental health concerns That's from a report from the American Psychological Association called Incarceration Nation. And and we know that access to health care, especially mental health care inside prisons, is incredibly difficult. Um, Number one, for mental health care to be effective, the person engaging in that has to feel safe enough to communicate their concerns and receive treatment. And if you know anything about prisons, they are not a safe place mentally or physically. 
And then when you're dealing with private prisons, privately owned organizations and companies that operate prisons in America, it is well documented and very clearly known that health, especially mental health, is one of the places that they slash their costs. They just do not invest in it. In some of these prisons, inmates have a copay that they have to pay to receive mental health services unless it is a life-threatening emergency. So you have people who, if they're allowed to work, earn something like 13 cents an hour, and they may have a $5 copay. So that's, I'm not good at math, but I think that's something close to 40 hours of work to be able to go to the doctor in prison. And I really want to, <laughs> I really want to promote uh, Just Mercy again here. There are There is story after story after story about the devastating impacts of the criminal justice system on mental health in that book. You cannot read it fast enough if you haven't. There is also other impacts uh, like not necessarily health, but say the loss of the right to vote. Being treated as an individual, fully recognized, a fully realized person in the American political system requires you to be able to vote, to have your voice heard. And a lot what happens is a lot of these prisoners, they are released into society. They are expected to be part of society again. They are expected to operate in society again, but they have no option to be represented uh, legally in, in our politics after they have been accused of a, of a felony, right? Um, there are certain ways that a inmate can petition and regain the right to vote, but I don't think anywhere can an inmate actually vote while they're in prison. And the vast majority of people who have been released from prison do not ever regain the right to vote or don't exercise it. The current felon disenfranchisement law or laws rather bar 13% of African-American men from casting a vote, which not 13% of African-American men who were inmates, 13% of the population of African-Americans in the United States cannot vote because of felon disenfranchisement laws, which means that incarceration is an excellent tool for voter suppression. It is in the same vein as poll taxes and literacy tests in the Jim Crow era. And we see it outside of prison now, you know, ID requirements where you are expected to have a particular ID that is very difficult to get for you, for example. And uh, that's also from the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, those, those stats. This is why you see a push for prisoner voting rights right now. Because whenever a society is incentivized, and especially whenever a political party is incentivized to suppress the voice of an opposition party by sending them to prison, you will find a way to legally send more people to prison and strip them of that right to vote. It is a reward for one political party to send members of a opposing political party, whether in fact or in reality or not, it is a reward to send them to prison to you because that means they cannot vote against you in the future. Yeah, it's it's just, it is, it's a continuation of the dehumanization of especially black men. And it's a, a continuation of that idea that 
that because they are inherently criminal and dangerous, right, that's the racist idea that we were working with at the foundation of this, they are less worthy of participation in the systems that run this country. And that's something that we've seen over and over and over again. And this disenfranchisement just, again, continues to reiterate the lack of value of a black male who is perceived to be a criminal. I mean, I think we have to talk about drugs, right? The war on drugs was such a, an incredible feeder for the population of the criminal justice system. Right. But it's important to note that approximately half of prison and jail inmates in America meet the DSM-4 diagnostic criteria, the psychological diagnostic criteria for substance abuse or dependence. They are going to prison and operating in prison with substance abuse issues. And then significant percentages of those people actually committed the act that they're incarcerated for while under the influence of drugs. And we we know that there is a kind of changing perspective and, and competing perspectives on drug abuse and substance abuse and dependence in the United States, but it is still considered to be a medical and psychological diagnosis. Right. So we have half of the prison population who has a medical diagnosis, but the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University estimates that only 11 percent of incarcerated individuals that are in need of substance abuse treatment receive it while they're in jail. So we have only 11 percent of people who have a psychological and medical diagnosis that can receive treatment while they're actually in prison. And again, it just goes back to that dehumanization of criminality, right? If you commit a crime, any crime, doesn't matter which crime, you are no longer worthy of basic human and civil rights. And then we know that most people with substance abuse issues who are released from prison or jail relapse in the community, which again, refeeds into that cycle, which again, feeds into those systems like this, the three strike rule where you find people who are then effectively unable to continue life in American society because of a substance abuse issue. Exactly. And that speaks directly to our recidivism rates in the United States. The United States has the highest, I believe, recidivism rate in the world. In the world. So either, there are two thoughts there, either Americans are just more criminal than everybody else in the world, or there's something inherent in our justice system that criminalizes more people than the rest of the world. It's not any you know secret that the US has the largest population of people in prison uh, relative to the size of the country than any other country in the world, including places like China. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think is uh, absurd. It's absurd. About two thirds or 67.8% of released prisoners were arrested for a new crime within three years of release. Three quarters, 76.6%, were arrested within five years. And that is from recidivism of prisoners released in 30 states in 2005. That's a publication by the uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics. By nine years post-release, 86.9% of African Americans were arrested for a new crime. Whereas, quote unquote, only 80.9% of the white and 81.3% of the Hispanic population uh, of former prisoners were rearrested. Now, I'm gonna say something and make it very clear here. Those are unforgivable numbers for all populations. Absolutely. But the fact that African-Americans are roughly 5% higher is another indication 
of the disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on African-American people. That is a statistically significant difference. And that is from a follow-up on that same group of information in the, uh, the two and the five-year recidivism rates that was also published by the uh, Department of Justice, the Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics. So this is all not because I think people are inherently criminal or more criminal, right? This is because of the systems that we expect people to live in in our society and then especially post-release. We don't prepare people to live in our society in a legal way while they're in prison. So they get released out without the tools that they need to live a, a law-abiding and productive and satisfying and rewarding life after they are incarcerated. And that is part of the problem. Absolutely. Um, you know, from a PR perspective, it looks really good for the justice system to promote all of those prisons where they do have education programs where you can earn a bachelor's degree, where you can pick up a trade. Um, there's one prison where women can get their cosmetology degree, right? And those are fantastic opportunities um, to learn and to grow because we know that people who come into prison are disproportionately undereducated and disproportionately experience poverty in their life outside of prison. But to be very clear, those programs are the exception and not the rule. The rule is private prisons and the rule is prison labor. And, and I invite anybody who's interested in that to dig into that just a little bit more because we all love to see the shining examples of prison reform and, mm -hmm. and how people come out better than they went in. Um, but again, don't, don't be confused. That's the exception and not, not the rule. And even in prisons where they do have those programs, the bars to get into those programs are sometimes astonishingly high to the point where it's it's almost so restrictive that you can't get in due to circumstance, not just behavior. So we, we really need to take a, a long look at how these programs operate if we want to reintegrate people into our society and, and be more complete contributors to our society. Yeah. And I think... Is there anything else you want to talk about in this section? You want to talk about uh, the other crimes bullet? No, I think... I, I don't want to challenge people too hard, right? <laughs> We're almost two hours in at this point. I think we've beat their heads against the wall pretty hard. Yeah. I would I would just invite anybody listening who um, who maybe is having the gut reaction that, that these people who are occupying our prisons um, don't have a place in society. I would just really invite you to sit with that for a minute and invite you to think about why it is that you might not like to see this incredibly staggering number of people of all races, but especially African Americans, become fully functional and more participatory in our society. Right. That's a and little bit of bias that I'm going to ask you to sit with for a minute. Yeah. And reflect on this. A lot of these people that are in prison, that are, that are convicted of felonious activity, felony charges specifically, a lot of them are probably just like you. In fact, you've probably broken a law that ended up with somebody going to prison and losing their right to vote. A lot of people tend to imagine felons as these hardened criminals, these people with, you know, scars and giant knives and big <laughs> muscles, you know, like uh, this cartoon perception of, of what a felon is without realizing that the vast majority of offenders are not violent offenders and they're just... 
They're just like you or one of your friends. I am willing to bet that most people listening to this, if not all people listening to this, know somebody who smokes pot. And imagine that person got sent to jail for 30 years. Would you want them to be able to reintegrate back into society? What would you have against that person reintegrating back? Do they really deserve to be stripped of their humanity, their personhood, because of something as insignificant as having an ounce of pot on them? If that thought makes you... property violations, I mean... Those of us of right? a certain age remember a certain program called Napster from which we got the best music of our day. And and there are people who have committed equally nonviolent crimes who will spend the rest of their lives in prison. Yeah. And this isn't to say that theft is okay, but is it worthy of being stripped of your personhood? That's what we really challenge you to think about when you listen to this. I think we're going to wrap it up. Yeah. I'd really like to, to hit the statistic hard. There is some good news. I wasn't able to find a more recent statistic, but racism, systemic racism in the criminal justice system has become more widely accepted as a reality in recent years. 49% of Americans, which is 76% of blacks and 45% of whites, say that the criminal justice system is biased against blacks in a 2016 survey compared to 33 to 38% in the 1993, 2008, and 2013 surveys. And uh, that's from Public Opinion Context, Americans, Race, and Police, a Gallup poll from July 8th, 2016. So there is movement towards understanding and comprehending that the criminal justice system is not affecting people proportionate to their representation in the population. That is good. That is great news. It needs to be higher and it needs to not be a problem at all. But the fact that people are thinking about this, I think for me, especially is personally encouraging. I feel a lot less like I'm shouting into the void when I read, when I read statistics like that. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I read some interesting statistics that polled both police officers and the populace at large about their view of equality among blacks and whites and representation. And it found very similar things. And so I think if we can continue to increase awareness of, again, this disproportionate contact with minority groups, then hopefully that awareness will lead to change and will lead to some changing hearts. We're going to leave you with a final quote from Michelle Alexander. She says, Today, it is legal to discriminate against ex-offenders in ways it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, depending on the state you're in, the old forms of discrimination, such as employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, and exclusion from jury service, are suddenly legal. As a criminal, You have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the next episode of uh, Fireside Breakdowns. We hope this challenged you. 
please take the time to reflect on this. Educate yourself. That is the most important thing you can do. And if you have any questions, if you'd like to to follow up on something, you can reach us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, whatever platform you listen on. It will help this podcast to grow. It'll help us dedicate more time to this, and it will help us bring back more content in the future. Thank you. Thank you.